0: Welcome back to another episode of what a week it is that time again one day earlier than normal because we're we're sandwiched between travel here I'm literally Andrew uh, 30 minutes home from a Nashville trip and you are you have 24 hours or less remaining before your big England trip so we're trying to squeeze this in here that's why we're a day early and all of that but uh, yeah welcome back to what a week for all you listeners Andrew you ready for your England trip.
1: I am I've got a lot to do, but I'm getting ready. i'm I'm coming to you today from uh, a different location, beaming out from the bunker that is my twelve year old son's bedroom. Nice. My audio quality is not quite up to our usual standard, but i I still think this could be a great show. Looking forward to it.
0: I love this thing in the background though. It looks like maybe a Lego Batman and then a giant Lego castle. Is that what I'm looking at?
1: Oh, yeah. yep. Awesome. I've got my son's uh, Lego Batman alarm clock is right there. And, uh, yeah, there's a big Lego Lego construction next to it. So
0: were you a Lego guy in your childhood, Andrew? I was not,
1: I was not a huge Lego guy. I liked really? it okay. okay. I was not all a right. huge, I was, a, I was an action figure guy for sure. I, yeah. I really liked action figures. I liked kind of playing like G.I. Joe's GI Joes, He-Man figures. Um, you know, gosh, all kinds of stuff.
0: How about transformers
1: transformers absolutely transformers yep yeah, loved them and uh and legos a bit but you know I, my memory of legos when i was a kid they were fun but i don't remember the kind of just exciting sets and stuff like my son does now you know i i don't remember like thinking like oh i gotta get that set i just remember thinking like oh yeah let's let's make something so just maybe i just wasn't aware of what lego was even then
0: yeah, I mean, in my childhood, first of all, Legos were supreme and in my opinion, remain supreme as the sort of the platonic ideal of the, the child's toy. Uh, I loved mm-hmm. Legos and still do love Legos. I think they've actually decreased in quality, though. Now they have they've gotten away from even the one size fits all sort of Lego person. And a lot of the sets, especially for girls, have slightly larger people that aren't quite interoperable with the older version of Lego people. Mm-hmm. Um and they've really bought into the sort of Hollywood universe. When I was growing up, it was definitely they leaned into Star Wars stuff. You could buy Star Wars Lego kits and all of that. But since then, they've added a lot of the main hits, most significantly, probably the Marvel Universe, So they all, the, all these Marvel Legos as well, uh, which is, I mean, I guess it's fine. But I think a lot of them have just decreased in quality. A lot of the new sets have fewer pieces overall, but they're really, really expensive. Uh, when I was growing up, though, they had some really cool like undersea exploration, kits they had some outer space kits that were non-star wars they had all the star wars stuff they had uh they had a whole western theme one uh mm-hmm. and we got this for christmas from our parents one time it was called fort legaredo and fort legaredo was like a 19th century uh western fort uh, staffed by u.s cavalry soldiers and then there were native americans uh who would attack the fort and all that and you could just have endless play with that so that was my probably my favorite kit growing up uh, but they're also like really cool police and fire stations and and uh, all, all kinds of stuff. There was also an Indiana Jones type figure before they made a partnership with whoever owns the rights for Indiana Jones. Now they I think have that. But before that, there was Johnny Thunder and Johnny Thunder was an Indiana Jones type of character. He even had the sort of like Aussie style hat. Uh, and he did all sorts of Indiana Jones type things. And those kits were really fun. He would, you know, go. I don't know, go raid an Egyptian Sphinx or a great pyramid or something like that and barely live to tell the tale. And there were snakes involved and scorpions and all that. Very fun though. Loved it.
1: Wow. You really know your stuff. My son aspires to to move to Denmark someday and work for Lego. Uh, really? So he, used to, he used to say that. So yeah, we're it. big Lego people in our house, but but you you definitely know more about the lore and the, the kind of the fun background of it than I do. I'm a super fan for sure.
0: Um, well, today, Andrew, we're talking about uh, a bunch of stuff. We have a really interesting book review to talk about for our close read section that we will get to. We've got some recommendations. We've got, of course, the misinformation. But prior to that, uh, you wanted to to talk about something uh, that re- that relates to the material world and possessing things in the material world. So let's talk about that
1: real quick. Yeah. Well, last time our listeners who joined us for the last episode may remember that uh, we talked briefly about. I I think I used an analogy of the the possibility that maybe our electric car situation right now could be compared to something like the laser disc phase. And I actually had a bit of a mixed analogy because I meant to say the kind of laser disc phase of the video industry, right, where we we went from VHS tapes and then eventually went to DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff like that. But there was this period where we had these laser discs, you know and apparently they were actually really high quality and that kind of thing but i remember when they came out and then they went away again and i remember thinking to myself oh okay well we won't have laser discs then we'll just stick with the tapes you know um which of course was ludicrous we didn't stick with the tapes we went on to right. something better kind of more portable or whatever than than the laser discs and now we're in the the streaming era um with whether it's for movies or for music but i mentioned when i was making this analogy that i still have a a ton of cds and indeed a ton of dvds and blu-rays and i just wanted to follow up on that because even though i did defend the the my practice of having these physical objects i wonder what our listeners will think about really something even more than that which is like a real defense of an appreciation of continuing to collect and to have these physical objects for a couple of reasons one is um Believe it or not, there are really, really good things, both in terms of music and in terms of video content that are not available for streaming. They're just not. Um, Sometimes they're just not for a while. Sometimes they've just never made their way to streaming. I have discovered this for sure with a lot of foreign things. I'm working on a book project about a lot of foreign movies and I've had to like order European DVDs because they just can't be bought anywhere online for for streaming or or stream for free or anything like that. So there is actually just a lot of stuff that you can't get unless you get the physical objects. So there's that. The second thing is, um, you can never be sure that even things that are streaming are gonna be available long-term. These these companies that give us this stuff that essentially like rent us out the use of these, uh, these pieces of media they could well decide that something becomes problematic or something becomes, you know, whatever it may be, something becomes just kind of unpalatable to the modern world. And then it just kind of gets memory hold. Um, and for my part, I don't know, just out of, you know, just mainly out of a kind of desire to kind of preserve the past. Um, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to hang on to things that, that matter to me. So, um, You know, the third thing kind of more theoretical, I guess, related to the second point is just, you know, we live in this world now where I am so grateful for the convenience of getting, in a sense, to rent all this media all the time. I'm grateful for that. There's tons of stuff that I would never watch if I didn't have all these streaming services that I would never listen to. But a lot of this stuff is not stuff that I need to see again. It's not stuff that I like particularly, you know, that is particularly important to me. Um, And... um, you know, I don't want streaming to become kind of in our minds, like the be all and end all of, you know, of the way that we, uh, the way that we consume art, you know? Um, Because actually to the point that we were talking about uh, last week with like the art world, you know, we've almost come to a point now where it doesn't matter if you actually go to a physical museum and, and look at the painting and see the actual strokes. What matters is that you can just sort of know what it is, know what it's about, move on to the next thing. Right. You know, I find with streaming, There there has developed a whole, um, just a whole kind of mindset for the way that media is consumed, where you can kind of, you know, um, you can do multiple things at once. You can just kind of have something on. You may have the subtitles on so that you can just kind of look up every now and again and like catch the frame and see what the words are so that you can also look back down on your phone. I like the ritual. I like the more holistic experience of, hey, let's take this thing out. Let's put it on. Let's appreciate it for what it is. So that's what I wanted to say. I didn't want to leave our listeners hanging uh, with, uh, with kind of a bad analogy that I made last time, and I want to just encourage people to keep buying media that they enjoy.
0: I like it. Uh, yeah, I have nothing to add to that. I agree with all your points. I think your second and third points especially are the most strong. Uh, but related to your first and second points, we discussed very briefly, I think, Andrew, the 1928 silent film, The Passion of Joan of Arc.
1: Yes. yes. This
0: is a good example of something that for the longest time was not available for streaming. Yep. So the first time I actually, the only time I saw that was uh, with my old pastor, who was a big film buff and he had procured a DVD copy. And we watched it together as a DVD. Uh, Now it is available on HBO max for now, but to your point about things becoming problematic, what happens when someone uncovers, you know, I'm using air quotes here, uncovers some problematic part of Joan of Arc's history, where she's no longer sort of compatible with the, woke orthodoxies of the day. HBO Max could very easily just make a licensing content permissions decision that says, yeah, this is not worth the, the money we're paying to have this on the platform. It's just easier because this is a problematic movie about a problematic figure. It's easier to just not have it at all. And then no one has access to the silent film, the 1928 Passion of Joan of Arc. And only those who have the actual DVD copy will be able to enjoy that in the future. So yeah. I think, I think you're right to, uh, to sort of hoard the good stuff, uh, in that way.
1: Yeah. And actually that's a really good example because, um, you know, another thing that could happen is sometimes for better, you can actually, you can adapt, you can make changes, right? I mean, so like the passion of Joan of Arc is a film that actually has been presented at different, um, uh, uh different rates, right? Like the, the, like the, Sorry, my mind is blanking, but the, you know, basically the rate of how quickly the, the, the frames change, right? Yeah. Rate, rates per, uh, frames per second. You yeah. can change that and you can create kind of a different film experience. And they've used different film scores with The Passion yeah. of, of Joan of Arc. I find all of that super interesting. And because Dreyer, the, the, the director, never really like had a definitive um, version with a definitive score, there's a way in which we can say, hey, that's really cool that we have that ability to do that. But then there are other cases, right? Where they can just sort of pull out a scene or like change the movie in some way. And and you wouldn't even know um, mm-hmm. that it might not even be what the what the original intent of the artist was. So all kinds of reasons to have both, to enjoy both, but to continue to cherish those physical objects where we can get them.
0: Yeah, I, t- I completely agree. Uh, The one thing I wanted to talk about real quick before we start is this recent New York Times article that showed up uh, a couple weeks ago, I think it was, and it was in the food section. And the title of this is, It's Not Just You, Blank Street Coffee is Suddenly Inescapable. And you read the intro to this, and basically there's this sort of hipster coffee cart that's popping up all around New York City. They have a bunch of locations. They're expanding uh, across the country, and I even think in London, if I recall correctly. Uh, And they're just exploding. And you read this piece and it sounds kind of nice at first. And then you realize this is actually frictionlessness in action. So recall back to our first conversation, Andrew, the piece from Tablet Magazine about frictionlessness and what a problem frictionlessness is. And Blank Street is the epitome of frictionlessness in action and why I think is a terrible, (laughs) terrible thing. So when you think of a coffee shop, the sort of charming coffee shop that most people want to enjoy, even if it's a hipster coffee shop. They want something that has its own aesthetic vibe, even if that vibe is maybe similar to other coffee shops they've enjoyed. They want it to be unique. They want it to sort of have its own cultural thumbprint. Uh, They want, obviously, good coffee. They want a nice atmosphere at which they can sip that coffee, and it's probably going to be a nice cup of coffee, some sort of cortada or something. They want a place where they can probably sit and maybe... Think about things. Read a good book. Write a good essay. Things like that. That's what I think. Justly, people think of as a good coffee shop. Blank Street Coffee is a coffee cart. Literally has no has no in person sort of incarnate experience other than the the barista handing you the cup itself. It's just sitting out there on the curb. Every cart is the same. There's no unique aesthetic vibe to any one of these. But not just that, and far worse than that, actually, uh, I think they're actually I think there are some brick and mortar locations, but they're very very small. So there's you don't you don't sit. There and drink a cup it's basically a, a you know a physical building that's about the size of a cart and you just walk in briefly you grab your cup and walk out even worse than that there is there are tens of millions of dollars of venture capital funds backing this coffee shop startup and they have poured tens of thousands of dollars into crunching all the data to optimize exactly how to position their store, the aesthetic choices that they make in their store, the ways to maximize the throughput of users, uh, even the the aesthetic choices and the, the culinary taste choices for how that cup of coffee should be. Uh, the, the, the article actually quoted one of the founders. Let me see if I can find the quote itself here. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Mr. Friha, one of the founders, he said, we don't need to be the most amazing cup of coffee you've ever had. We want to be the really good cup of coffee that you drink twice a day, every day. Not a great quote <laughs> to support this idea from the New York Times that they're not actually trying to make great coffee; they're just trying to make coffee good enough to compel you at that price point to take out your wallet and pay up for it. So it says a sixteen-ounce iced latte costs four twenty-five at Blank Street, at Dunkin' it's three seventy-five, so it's fifty cents more expensive, but it's it's a dollar and twenty-five cents cheaper than it is at Starbucks. So they're trying to to optimize the price point knowing that it's not a great cup of coffee and they're not, they're not even trying to trying to do that. So there's nothing artistic about this at all Uh, to the extent that it has an aesthetic vibe. It's just completely manufactured and synthetic designed to just optimize the customer experience so that you sort of feel good when you go there. Uh, But it seems, it seems terrible. They're all the same. The end goal is that they have literally thousands of blank street coffees all over the world, giving people the exact same experience at the exact same price point that by their own admission is a mediocre experience. And that's their vision for the future of coffee. And venture capitalists, to their great shame, I think, are pouring millions and millions of dollars into this vision because they want to be a part of this frictionless hellscape of a landscape for consumer coffee. So uh, in some, this is a little bit of a monologue, Andrew, but in some, I think it's very fitting that this place is called Blank Street Coffee because, it's, because it is fittingly the least creative expression of cultural uh, of culinary preference that I've ever heard tell of. And I will never, ever in my life have a cup of Blank Street Coffee.
1: I was going to ask you if there was if it was just a some kind of funny coincidence or, or if there if there was an actual blank street where the original blank street coffee started because I mean it seems like it's just kind of a joke right blank street like you know insert name here coffee shop everywhere um, yeah
0: I but I, it, I don't know I, I mean they probably have some sort of cute cute you know charming uh, contrived story about how they came up with with blank street coffee but I think it is a a happy and fitting coincidence.
1: That is interesting. It it actually sounds just like a parody of Starbucks. So really, yes. I mean, it seems like you know you could just. I mean, that's kind of what Starbucks is already, right? Um, but you know, so it's almost like when you see these blank street things, it's just going to make me kind of chuckle at the entire kind of consumer the yeah um, experience of of chain coffee. Yep, totally concur. So there wow. it is,
0: Blank Street Coffee.
1: Mm. Avoid it like the plague.
0: Avoid it like the plague. All right. With that, sorry for the monologue there, Andrew. I'm ready to move on to misinformation if you are.
1: I am ready. I've got three good ones for you. Okay. Cool. Here we go. All right. Misinformation number one. If true, this one is from Yahoo Life. On Friday, September 2nd, actor Timothy Chalamet wore a custom blood red backless top at the Venice Film Festival. Chalamet was wearing this top in Venice to promote his new film, Bones and All, which depicts a cannibal romance. Cannibalism making another appearance in Cannibalism. this information. I, okay. I, I thought you would like that one. If true, this... if not true, then, you know, I'm picking up a theme that we have. Sounds,
0: this sounds very Chalamet to me. I'm, my initial inclination is true, but I will reserve final judgment.
1: Okay, hold on. There might be some other contenders yep. here. All right, number two, this one from Twitter, if true. On September 5th, Elon Musk, in response to the first two episodes of Amazon's Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, tweeted this, quote, Tolkien would be so proud. He followed up with a second tweet stating, quote, the male characters inspire courage, just like in The Lord of the Rings. The female characters embody grace and wisdom. Okay. If true, those are two tweets from Elon Musk, who who makes often he often makes appearances in our in our podcast, doesn't he? He does indeed, yeah. Interesting guy. Okay, so that's number two. Here's number three. Okay. This is from Huff Post, which I think used to be called the Huffington Post. Is it still is, called that? Is it I officially
0: Huff Post now?
1: I don't know. It says Huff Post all over everything. Let's see. Anyway. I'm
0: gonna look this up while you give me the the, 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 look the it up. question. No, I think it is Huff Post. Huff what Post. in the world?
1: There you go. Yeah, okay, formerly so this the is Huffington
0: from... Post. Into, it, since 2017, it's been the Huff Post. Andrew, what in the world? Whoa! How how did I not know that? Hmm. I mean, it's not like it's ever done good work, but I, it must be really just out of my consciousness since I had no idea it was now the Huff Post.
1: But okay. I wonder if people know what the Huff stands for. I mean, Huff the Huffington. It stands for a person, right? Ariana Ari- Huffington. Yeah,
0: Ariana. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, anyway. most people probably don't know that. <laughs>
1: Well, anyway, so from the HuffPost, here we go. If true, the headline is former manager of DoD Aerospace Threat Program, quote, UFOs are real. And uh, if true, here's here's a little continuation. Former high level officials and scientists with deep black experience who have always remained in the shadows came forward on one platform. These insiders have longstanding connections to government agencies, which may have programs investigating unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, or UFOs. Okay, so those are the three. What do you
0: think? Well, uh, as you know, I have a background in the U.S. Air Force. Right. Headlines like the third one are not terribly surprising, and they tend to pop up every now and then. They've been popping up more since the revelation a few years ago about the, that, that secret trove of government documents about recent unidentified aerial phenomena. I'm going to guess that one is true. The Huffington Post one.
1: You're right. That's true. Okay. Let me, uh, let me flesh it out a little bit more. The article continues today. That was, I don't know, some other day, a few days ago today, marked the official launch of to the stars Academy of arts and sciences an innovative public benefit corporation, which will advance research into unexplained phenomena and develop related technology. It has established three synergistic divisions, science, aerospace, and entertainment. This could represent the beginning of a trend towards a new openness on the part of the U.S. government. These people know more than any of us, and they will be releasing important data on UAP in the future. I think I left out a part there where these these people in the know um, CIA people and military people are kind of involved in this, uh, to the stars Academy thing. But anyway, that's true. And it is uh, from the pen of a journalist named Leslie Keane. So okay. there we are. All right. You're right. So now it is,
0: now it is down to the Elon Musk, uh, ringing endorsement of the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and the Timothy Chalamet, uh, <laughs> backless top, backless top, blood red, blood pl- red. Pr- promoting his movie that features cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to go with the gut on this. I have no inside knowledge on any of these. I, for example, it could be even, could even be fake that, uh, Chalamet is appearing in an upcoming movie about cannibalism, but, um, I'm going to go with that one being true and Elon Musk being false. The Elon Musk, it's, it sounds more, the Elon Musk tweet sounds more like a Jordan Peterson tweet to me, to be honest, Andrew, Mm uh, Elon Musk says some provocative things, but this does not sound like him. So I'm going to go with my gut. Second one, fake first one, true.
1: You are you are correct. Let's let's uh, let's work backwards uh, from two okay. to one to, to talk about these. Um, well, Elon Musk did, in fact, tweet about the new show, uh, Amazon's Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, which okay. we have touched on in uh, a previous episode. I'm going to say something about in my final recommendation section today. Excellent. But he did not like the show at all. And in fact, he said the opposite. I don't know why I just enjoy making up tweets. I'm making up quotes. So you're gonna, you're gonna like call me out. <laughs> I love things. it. I'm gonna have to think of another way to try and get one past you. But here's what his actual tweets said. So I said his first tweet said Tolkien would be so proud. His actual tweet said Tolkien would be turning in his grave. Ah. Then he followed that tweet up with my fictitious tweet said. Um, the male characters inspire courage, just like in the Lord of the Rings, the female characters embody grace and wisdom. He actually said almost every male character so far is a coward, a jerk, or both only Galadriel is brave, smart, or nice. So he did have something nice to say about the Galadriel character, but it's also kind of barbed, right? Because it's sort of like Amazon is only doing anything positive about a female character and not about the male characters. Yeah. So he did not like the show. Um, From what I have seen, I do not like the show. Um, It is getting a lot of negative uh, feedback from Lord of the Rings fans, although some like it. Um, But the show did have a very big premiere with 25 million streams in the first 24 hours on the site. So, you know, it remains to be seen whether there's going to be a following for this show, which is just at the beginning of what will be a five year, five season run. So
0: amazing. Amazing. I was not one of the 25 million. I do not plan to be one of the 25 million. I simply have better things to do with my time than to watch Jeff Bezos' version of uh, The Lord of the Rings. Now, I know that, you know, he says that the showrunners actually didn't really pay attention to his notes, so his fingerprints may not be all over it, but it's uh, colloquially, it's easier to refer to as sort of the the Bezosification of the uh, Tolkien universe. Uh, I'm not a giant Tolkien head anyway, Andrew, so it's not like I have a huge, huge interest in this stuff. Uh, but I do think it's funny that Musk's actual tweet, as you said, said that she what was it? Brave, smart, and nice, <laughs>
1: which. Yep. But Galadriel is brave, smart, and nice.
0: I mean, brave, brave is good, but smart and nice are right. two pretty shallow compliments. I'm reminded of the, um, I think it's CS Lewis, right. Who sort of talks about how many people conceive of God as some, simply sort of this nice being upstairs. Uh, and that's not at all what God is. And that's not what the epitome like that's not that's not the uh, well niceness is not a cardinal virtue let's put it that way so human beings should not aspire to niceness and so it's just funny that he chose to compliment her with that when it's you know nice is not really a compliment at all when you're talking about it, it a fantasy epic that's supposed to inspire the best in us.
1: I also think it's funny well yeah to to your first point about god and niceness. I actually w- once wrote an article for an evangelical website called 10 times when Jesus wasn't nice and I engaged mm. with that a little bit. But something that's funny here is my, what I what I've experienced of the show and in some of the things I've read about it and videos I've watched about it it doesn't actually seem like Galadriel is very nice. She seems oh. I mean to to sound, you know, kind of controversial here. I mean, she's, she's kind of a Karen. I mean, she's kind of like a kind, you know, she's sort of, uh, there's this whole, whole sort of thing about wanting to kind of talk to almost like a kind of, let me, let me speak to the manager kind of thing. So okay. um, anyway, I'm not sure what, what Elon Musk is getting at exactly there. I find it interesting that he comments on these major things going on in popular culture and gets a lot of attention for doing so. So, um,
0: I can't imagine the reactions to his quote his comment were very positive oh no
1: he got he got a lot of he got a lot of a lot of negative feedback on that yeah all right well that that leads us then to the the last one which you were right is correct timothy chalamet is in fact in this movie called bones and all it did in fact just play at the venice film festival and he did in fact wear this custom blood red backless top um let me tell you a little bit more about this i know we want to move on but uh, just so you're aware Picking up on the cannibal theme that you raised in a previous podcast, Um, this article from Yahoo Life says, Chalamet let it all hang loose at the Venice Film Festival on Friday while wearing a backless cherry red top. How about that? Wow. Promoting his upcoming film, Bones and All, Chalamet walked the red carpet in a daring ensemble, (laughs) unlike anything he's worn before. But then it gets better. Um, according to Vogue, his outfit consisted of a halter jumpsuit adorned with an almost shimmery sequined material and was the brainchild of one of his favorite designers, Hyder Ackerman. Um, I'll keep going. He styled it with a pair of sleek black jawed boots and topped it all off with sunglasses. So that's the outfit, right? This is what he decided wow. to to wear. But then wow. here's a little bit about the movie. Bones and All is due to be released November 24th, according to IMDb. Viewers will see Chalamet play a bisexual cannibal who falls in love with another cannibal, played by Taylor Russell, Variety reported. Such a plot might explain why Chalamet went for such a blood-red look for his Venice appearance. Cannibalism. it got an it's, eight minute standing ovation at, at the Venice Film Festival by the way so I don't know eight minute I don't know what what the film does uh, yeah. I think uh, may, you know who knows maybe it's a critique of cannibalism I don't know uh,
0: one could hope one, one could hopes, hope that one the tale of the <laughs> one could hope that the tale of the bisexual cannibal would be a cautionary one Andrew but uh, nothing is beyond belief anymore
1: so <laughs> yes.
0: That's all such I have to say. Such is the world that. we live in. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, success such is the world. Yeah. What a time to be alive, Andrew.
1: I know. What a time. Wow.
0: Okay. I. <laughs> all right. Uh, that was that was a good mis- misinformation segment. Thank you for thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thanks. Good job with your guessing. Um, all right. Well, let's go on to our close read section. We have a long one today, very long one, and we have less time today, so we're going to be a little bit a uh, little bit pressed for time. We will try our best to be efficient. But today's close read linked in the show notes is a book review from Astral Codex 10 that I once read about what the reference to Astral Codex 10 is, but it is a blog uh, written by a man named Scott Alexander, who is a doctor somewhere on the West Coast, psychiatrist by training. And he's he's written this very popular blog called Astral Codex 10 for several years. In fact, I believe it was the New York Times, but I don't want to slander them if that's not correct. There's some major news outlet that did a big profile on him. He used to write anonymously under the sort of the 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 just the blog, anonymously under the blog Astral Codex 10. But this news outlet went to great lengths to out him and and label him for no real good reason. And so he ended up just coming out to his listeners and saying, Hey, it's me. I'm Scott Alexander. I'm the author of Astral Codex 10. This news outlet is trying to to smear me by outing me when I don't want to be outed to all my subscribers, but here I am, and uh, now there's nothing they can do about it. So uh, that's when Astro 10 entered my, my consciousness as something that was interesting and should be read, perhaps. He writes very well, and he writes about very interesting ideas. I cannot say that I've, written, that I've read a lot of what he's had, you know, a few things here and there. I found this piece through Connor Friedersdorf, who publishes a, a newsletter called Best of Journalism. And I thought it was very interesting because the piece that we're looking at today is reviewing a book uh, called What We Owe the Future by Will McCaskill. There is a good chance that you've seen some book review of this book uh, elsewhere recently, because as Scott Alexander points out, it has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Vox, NPR, the BBC, The Atlantic, Wired, Boston Review. He's been on various podcasts, those of Sam Harris, Ezra Klein, Tim Ferriss, Tyler Cowen or Cohen. Uh, Elon Musk has tweeted about him. Uh, Matt Iglesias, the, uh, the one time Vox reporter, has tweeted about him. So lots of lots of public attention for Will McCaskill in this book what we owe the future. And this review, which is very lengthy, but I would recommend it and very, very worthwhile to read is a review of what the of what McCaskill's arguments are in this book. And I will try to do a kind of quick overview of what Scott Alexander says about this. But before I attempt that, Andrew, and I probably will not do a very good job. Any opening comments on our discussion here?
1: Well, I think you'll do a better job than I in just, uh, you already set the table pretty well for what, what this is. I actually had not heard of Scott Alexander or the, or his blog before, um, but I will say to to our listeners, they really ought to read this because it is a hilarious read, actually. I mean, there were like several laugh out loud moments when I'm reading this guy's assessment of this book, which is a very popular book, which I haven't read um, called What We Owe the Future. Um so I'll throw it back to you to, uh, to, to, to continue setting the table, and then I'm sure I'll have, have some comments.
0: Great. Sounds good. Yeah, I will try my best. Uh, word of caution to our listeners. I just read this at the airport this morning. It's been on my to-do list for a long time, but I just gave it a, a read at the airport. So I'm going, to, I'm going to summarize this live. We'll do it live as uh, I think it was Bill O'Reilly said, Andrew. So the point of What We Owe the Future by Will McCaskill is to ask the question, what do we owe the future? The future being the future humans who will come after us. What do we owe them? Should we value the people around us presently, our own children who are flesh and blood in front of our very eyes, who live in our households, et cetera? Should we value them in the same way, to the same extent that we value future people, or should we value people here to a greater extent? And if so, then how much should we value the people in the future? So that's basically the the fundamental question that that underpins this. Scott Alexander's review delves into utilitarianism to try to pick apart some of McCaskill's what we might call his sort of philosophical priors and commitments in this book, and in so doing, Alexander uncovers what I think is the the, the big sort of death death blow to utilitarianism, which is just what uh, what some have called, including me, the calculation problem. Right in utilitarianism philosophy, everything just breaks down to a calculation. Uh, So every thought experiment becomes a calculation. Uh, Every question about maximizing good becomes a question of, you know, is 10,000, is the happiness of 10,000 people more important than the happiness of 1 billion people, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that ends up being, being a very complicated question to answer for a variety of reasons. But Scott, uh, Scott Alexander does a pretty good job of, uh, of trying to answer this. So to give some examples, Alexander says that McCaskill in his book frames the question this way. If humanity stays at the same population, uh, you know, right now I think we have around seven billion people on planet Earth. But we exist for 500 million more years at the current rate of reproduction. The future would contain fifty quadrillion people. So it's a lot of that's a lot of people, right? So uh, so it's it's a million, billion, trillion, then quadrillion—an awful lot of people. By the way, Andrew, in my household, just for fun and to try to teach my kids some basic math, we like to do sort of back of the back of the napkin calculations at the dinner table. And about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, uh, we were talking about a quadrillion, which is my three-year-old's favorite number. He doesn't obviously understand the scope and magnitude of this, but he likes to reference a quadrillion. (laughs) So so he mentioned a quadrillion peas because we were eating peas at the table. And so I asked the kids, "How, how much land do you think a quadrillion peas would cover? So we did some order of magnitude calculation and basically figured out that a quadrillion peas... Uh, would cover if you if you have a an inch deep of of a quadrillion, you know peas at about an inch deep a quadrillion of them would cover a landmass according to my calculations and maybe a listener will write in to show me how wrong I am but according to my calculations would cover a landmass roughly the size of the state of Maryland the U S state of Maryland so this is a this is a very big number right it's a lot of peas and so if humanity survives for another five hundred million years uh, we would have uh, a, a fifty quadrillion people okay that's the that's what Will McCaskill says. Now, um, this, of course, then leads to his fundamental question, right? Should we behave differently, even though we're only seven billion people now? Should we behave differently, knowing that there could be five hundred or fifty quadrillion people in humanity in the future? now if if uh, one quadrillion peas will cover the state of Maryland, obviously fifty quadrillion people will exceed the the uh, the available land mass on planet Earth, so we would have to be pursuing what Elon Musk has been really uh, a strident advocate for, and that is interplanetary colonization, et cetera. But but I digress. The question, as Will McCaskill frames it, is, should we value this hypothetical future 50 quadrillion people as much, or even almost as much, or at all, compared to the 7 billion people that we have on planet Earth? Now, if we do, that matters for the choices we make today because of uh, what we call Pascalian reasoning. This is what Scott Alexander talks about. Now, I looked up this Pascalian reasoning. I'm very familiar with Pascal's wagers, as I'm, as I'm sure you are. Uh, before you had read this article, Andrew, were you familiar with Pascal's mugging?
1: No, actually, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. I was not, I was not familiar with that. Um,
0: yeah, nor was I. Wh- what's your take uh, on that? So it makes a lot of sense to me as a sort of uh, as a philosophical thought quandary for our listeners. Pascal's mugging refers to a thought experiment first uh, articulated by Blaise Pascal, as I understand it, in which Pascal is hypothetically accosted by a uh, a man who wants to rob him or mug him at knife point, point. and this man says, "Give me your wallet with which has a hundred dollars in it, and if you give me your wallet uh, without resisting, I will return it tomorrow with two hundred dollars in it." And so Pascal does the calculation and says I basically think there is a less than 50% chance that you will return this tomorrow with $200. So therefore I will re- I will reject your offer and I will not give you my wallet. Cuz he does the the payoff equation which is basically uh, involves the probability of something happening and the expected payoff. So it you know, a $200 payoff makes sense at a 50% uh, 50% probability because you divide the starting point by the probability. 100 divided by 0.5 is 200 and so that payoff makes sense. Uh, or or anything greater than that. So a 50% probability of success at a $300 payment makes a lot of sense. But the the Pascal's mugging becomes a potential problem because uh, this this mugger could say, hey, uh, Pascal, I would like to give you a trillion dollars if I come back tomorrow. And so if you give me your wallet now with $100 in it, I will return it to you tomorrow with a trillion dollars in it. Now, you might say that's that's an absurd proposition. And it mostly is but even just based on uh, based on reason, Pascal or someone in this position would deduce that there is at least an infinitesimally small chance that that robber would be good for his word. So at some point, at a very, very, very low probability, as the payoff approaches infinity, there's actually a point at which it would make sort of rational sense to give this mugger what they want. So how does that translate into real life? Well, you might say, um, hey, I'm not going to give anything to charity now. Instead, I'm going to pour all of my extra income into uh, finding a way to, I don't know, uh, cure cancer, right? On the off chance that me, me pouring whatever my life savings is, you know, $100,000 into the problem of curing cancer and spending all my, my uh, spare time on that project, uh, on the off chance that that is successful and I'm able to successfully cure cancer, uh, that will have an in, almost infinitely higher payoff than it would to donate one hundred thousand dollars to the Salvation Army, for example. All right. So this is this is this is the problem that Pascal's mugging uh, the, illustrates. The reality is that you know at a point where those probabilities are so small, there's not really any expected payoff that makes sense. Because even if the even if the robber says I'm going to give you a one quintillion dollars tomorrow if you give me hundred dollars now, even if there is this the the slightest chance approaching infinity approaching zero, actually a chance that approaches zero, despite the almost infinity, uh, payoff, it still does not make sense, but the, the strict math of our probability and our wagering would dictate that it actually could be a rational decision and it does not. So that's basically the problem of, of Pascal's mugging, um, as it's outlined, uh, by Pascal and referred to by, uh, by Will McCaskill in this book.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. You know, one of the things that confused me throughout and, and, you know, I, I, uh, I should just state my priors up front and say, I've never really been that good at ethics, to be honest with you. When I was in divinity school, I found it in some respects, the most frustrating and least interesting discipline that that I could participate in because it's so hypothetical, right? Now on one level, I enjoy that kind of thinking like sort of, oh, it's fun to kind of play something out in my mind, but it gets very frustrating when you're thinking about you know how to live your actual life and we have you know sort of like a class of people who are saying like you know this hypothetical we determined to be of such of such critical import that you must not live your life in this particular way that you right. think might be right. might be best right which is you know kind of at its worst with particularly with utilitarians right with sort of utilitarian philosophy and i love this line that alexander he says uh, all utilitarian philosophers have one thing in common: hypothetical scenarios about bodily harm to children, which I think is it, it's uh that really sums it up right i mean it 's sort of yeah. like you know your children or future children right It sort of then creates this binary that we can that that they 're trying to concretize in the form of like these are children we 're talking about, and yet you 're like right. but they're not really children we 're talking about actually we 're talking about the future, right? We're talking about this like anthropomorphized time that doesn't exist yet. You know, I, I think about the very end of Back to the Future Part Three, when, you know, the lesson that Marty McFly finally learns is the future isn't written yet. You know, it's like you 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 think about what might be, but until you're actually living it, you know, you don't really know. Um, and so, you know, he uses this example of um, with regards to bodily harm to children. I just thought this this kind of summed up the problem with this kind of altruist, or the you know um, uh, um, utilitarian ethics, he says yeah. the effective altruist movement. I guess that that's sort of what what this is about. The effective altruist movement started with Peter Singer's drowning child scenario. Suppose while walking to work, you see a child drowning in the river. You are a good swimmer and could easily save them, but the muddy water would ruin your expensive suit. Do you have an obligation to jump in and help? If yes, it sounds like you think you have a moral obligation to save a child's life, even if it costs you money. But giving money to charity could save the life of a child in the developing world. So maybe you should donate to charity instead of buying fancy things in the first place. Or maybe you decide the whole thing stinks. And you know, yeah, I'm going to buy a nice fancy suit. And if I see a child drowning, no, I'm not going to jump in and save the child because I could have given the money to charity instead of buying this fancy suit, but I didn't. I bought the suit, so the child should just drown, right? It just goes right. in all of these right. absurd directions eventually. That I just think <laughs> yeah. are so so frustrating.
0: Yeah, well, I think uh, Scott Alexander would agree with you at least to an extent based on this piece because he ends the piece with basically a critique of the sort of calculation problem and how uh, the calculation uh, behind utilitarian situational ethics is not sufficient enough for us to make you know near term, as he calls it, decisions. Um, let let me just finish kind of summarizing some of the things here and I'll, 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 I will end circling back to what you just said, Andrew. But so, so I I outlined the sort of Pascal's mugging question. And so Alexander, uh, asserts that at least McCaskill is saying that this is not a Pascalian question. It's not like, Hey, we have a 0.0000001% chance to affect the future. He says we actually have a, a, like a pretty significant chance. And by significant, I mean, maybe like 1%. Mm And that that 1% could come in one of three methods, according to McCaskill. The first one is progress. And that is very simple. That is simply basically that we keep getting better at solving big problems before the problems kill us. Because the the whole risk here is that humanity will face some sort of catastrophic event that will wipe out all of humanity. And so the the progress avenue basically says we're going to outpace that stuff. We're going to figure out how to solve pandemics before they happen. We are going to uh, figure out how to defend against nuclear missiles before uh, the nuclear missiles can actually uh, avert and work around our defense systems. We are going to figure out how to stop and divert an asteroid that's on a collision course for Earth, et cetera, simply through progress. That's the, that's the progress avenue. The second avenue is survival, which basically just means as long as some, num- some N, some number of people survive, we'll be okay. And the survival route is illustrated by McCaskill through this this uh, kind of three-option uh, logic that says option A is nothing bad happens. Option B is a nuclear war kills 9 billion people. And option C is that a slightly bigger nuclear war kills all 10 billion people. And Alexander says clearly A, where nothing bad happens, is better than B. Um, and B and is better than C. Right, Better to have nuclear war killing 9 billion people than nuclear war killing 10 billion people. And he, but, but he says, but which is bigger, the difference between nothing happening and 9 billion people being killed or the difference between 9 billion people being killed and, and 10 billion people being killed? And he said, actually, uh, the difference between B and C is a lot greater because C doesn't only kill an extra billion people. It actually kills everyone, also preventing that hypothetical 50 quadrillion people in the future. So preventing human extinction, as Alexander says here, is really important. And the survival one basically emphasizes, all we have to do is make sure that some subset of humanity survives, and that is how we will avoid, you know, the the, the catastrophic end of the human race. The final one is trajectory change. And McCaskill seems to be most optimistic about this one based on Alexander's review. I have also not read, read the book. Uh, but he talks about, for example, the abolition of slavery. And he says, some things that we do uh, are so enduring that we can expect these changes to last effectively forever. And he cites slavery as an example of this. He says, up until the 17th century, almost every, almost every civilization in humanity had slaves. It wasn't until then that through the Quakers, the abolitionist movement was born. And basically in a span of about 200 years, you can go almost 300 if you count, some some sort of lagging economies and societies that had slavery into the 20th century. So 200, 300 years within that time, slavery just simply became verboten and McCaskill thinks it will never come back because of this sort of trajectory change. So the trajectory change is one in which we we change our own destiny through, uh, through a concerted effort that has enduring effects. McCaskill thinks this may come about through AI, for example, but this is, this is the third Avenue of, um, uh, the third avenue for the future that he thinks leaves us with a possibility. Now, uh, Alexander sums up all these things, and then he goes into more of this sort of calculation problem where he's asking this question about, you know, how do we maximize the future happiness of all these people? And in this section, I think is where it gets really interesting, Andrew, because he starts to make this sorts of complaints that you were just outlining. Um, and there's this one, there's this one part where he talks about, uh, how philosophers tend to be really tricky. He outlines this one scenario in which the philosopher says, okay, imagine a world where you have 5 billion people, each with happiness level of 100. So there's this like mythical happiness index from negative 100, where you're totally miserable. This is basically like you're suicidal. You're in hell. You're that miserable. Uh, You have a negative desire to live. And that negative desire is maxed out to max negativity of negative 100. And then there's zero where you're basically neutral on living or dying. And then there's 100 plus 100 happiness where you're just perfectly happy. You could not be happier if you imagine it. Uh, and he says, imagine this world, the philosophers say, imagine this world in which we have 5 billion people maxed out at happiness level 100. Well, of course, the the goal of a utilitarian is to maximize overall happiness. So then you say, all right, so we have world A, which has billion or, uh, 5 billion people at a happiness level of 100. Imagine then adding another 5 billion people at a slightly lower level of happiness, happiness level 80. But that's still really good. Imagine remember in this scenario, happiness level zero is your neutral. So happiness level 80 is you're still really, really happy. So now we have 10 billion people, all of whom are between 80 on eighty and 100 on the happiness scale. So super, super, super happy people. Now, those philosophers, philosophers say, um, to maximize happiness, actually, what you really should do is uh, sort of even those numbers out. So if you can lower the, the happiness of the 100 people, the 100 level happiness people, 5 billion of them and slightly raise the happiness of the other 5 billion people, you could get 10 billion people with a happiness level of 95. And basically, if you keep iterating on this all the way down, you end up having everyone be miserable because you're trying to maximize happiness. In fact, you end up uh, in this hypothetical scenario uh, going uh, all the way down to negative 100. So everyone actually ends up totally miserable. So this is the, this is the thought experiment uh, that is uh, obviously a huge problem. And Alexander says, I don't want to play the philosophy game. Maybe McCaskill can come up with some clever proof that the commitments I list above imply I have to have my eyes pecked out by angry seagulls or something, because he sort of outlines his own own convictions uh, just prior to this. And he said, if that's true, I will just not do that and switch to another set of axioms. If I can't find any system of axioms that doesn't do something terrible when extended to infinity, I will just refuse to extend things to infinity. I can always just keep world A with its 5 billion extremely happy people. I like that one. When the friendly AI asks me if I want to switch from world A to something superficially better, I can ask it, quote, tell me the truth. Is this eventually going to result in my eyes being pecked out by seagulls? And if it answers yes, I have a series of 28 switches, and each one is obviously better than one before. And the 28th is this world, except your eyes are getting pecked out by seagulls, end quote, then I will just avoid the first switch. Mm-hmm. I realize that that will intuitively feel like leaving some utility on the table. The first step in the chain looks just looks so much obviously better than the starting point but I'm willing to make that sacrifice. Okay, so I don't know if I'm doing a very good job explaining this. This is a very heady uh, summary, and I do recommend it to our listeners to read for themselves. But what I take away from this, Andrew, is that Scott Alexander is basically saying, I reject these terms, and this is not the right way to have a conversation about long-termism because these hypothetical ideas about hypothetical futures of quadrillions of people Um, do not do justice to the world in which we live today and the question of what we owe the present. And so what we owe the future is a good question to ask, but we are trying to answer it the wrong way because we can't answer it with these hypothetical questions about situational ethics. We have to answer it in light of the commitments that we have to now and to the people and relationships that surround us today.
1: Yeah. I mean, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that this is kind of like an inter utilitarian debate. Like it seems to me like both Alexander and McCaskill are kind of utilitarians, right? I think that's right. But yes. McCaskill is sort of like in a sense like trying to do this like transcendent utilitarianism that all, that almost like comes around to the same conclusion that some that maybe thinkers like we would that we would say, which is like, I mean, a conclusion that basically says the most important thing is everybody have lots of babies. You know, Um, which is like not something most utilitarians would say, right? But like McCaskill sort of wants to figure out a way to say that um, by means of this like utilitarian logic. Um, Whereas Alexander, it seems to me, is is maybe kind of more of an old school utilitarian and sort of saying, like, yeah, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, it seems to me he's actually like disagreeing with this idea that we ought to be having lots of children, for example. Yes. Um, Yes. And so, because he he
0: mentions explicitly that that he agrees with the idea that if you think that you're, th- that there's a greater than 50% probability that your child will have a sort of negative happiness experience throughout their life, that you shouldn't have the child, that it would be a bad thing right. to have the child. So yes, he's definitely buying into this this utilitarian mindset. What I think, uh, w- well, I mean, yeah, we'd have to ask him. What it seems like to me is that he is rejecting these sort of thought thought experiments about the sort of hypothetical quadrillions of people. And he is favoring what we might call sort of like a, a gut, a gut utilitarianism, mm-hmm. where he doesn't like the calculations themselves, but he agrees with the underlying conviction that what we should really be doing is maximizing the happiness of people everywhere, you know, here today and also in the future. Right. right? But but that the but that the sort of um, philosophical thought puzzles are not the way to answer that question.
1: Yeah, and it seems like he takes issue with, with in subtle ways with each of um, with with each of McCaskill's like. Um, each of his three kind of prospects for the future, right? For like the progress, the survival, and then what was the other one? the trajectory one. But I yep. thought like his critique of the survival one was particularly interesting and interesting to me, that was actually the one that most got my attention was this survival one, right? Like,
0: yes, his, yes, you know,
1: the point about how like, okay, so nothing bad happens is great. We don't want anything bad to happen. But if a nuclear war kills nine billion people versus ten billion people, a billion people is still a lot of people left on the earth, right? And like the right, idea that right. like no matter how bad global warming gets, Greenland is going to be okay, no matter, you know, how bad nuclear winter gets, New Zealand is probably going to be okay because of its sort of unique geographical situation or whatever. I'm I'm reading this and I'm like, "Wow, okay. All right, good. Like there's hope, right?" And then there's like this this funny part about how um mccaskill says like we need to like you know he's all for like renewable energy and like taking car you know like we need to reduce carbon emissions and all that kind of thing but one of the most important reasons he says we need to do that is we ought to leave the carbon in the ground that's still there so that if something catastrophic happens our successors in the future will be able to in a sense like recreate the industrial revolution which which i'm reading that i'm like wow that that actually kind of makes sense um yeah i mean I, i you know i don't know for sure, but. I don't think Scott Alexander liked that logic at all. It doesn't seem like he's sort of on board with that, but I could yeah, be wrong.
0: I agree. But, uh, but I also found that section interesting and I was like, man, maybe I'll start looking into real estate in New Zealand right. because uh, the stuff about it mostly being shielded from nuclear winter. I was like, that sounds pretty good.
1: <laughs> I know
0: they, Sign they me up for that. please. They have to
1: put up with a lot right now, but Hey, it might all be worth it in the long run. It might be. Yeah.
0: So I think that's, that's the big takeaway from this piece, right? Is buy real estate in New Zealand, Andrew
1: and, and have lots of children. Yeah that's right
0: so uh to wrap this discussion up because there's so much more we could say it's a super long piece and we really just scratched the surface of this whole idea i mean i i think i will pick up a copy of the book from the library because i'm interested in exploring more of mccaskill's thoughts on these ideas and i suspect that you know i will strongly disagree with him on uh, on a lot of them but what i mean do you have a do you have any more clearly a defined position on what we owe the future after reading this article or did it did it provoke anything in you um in thinking about this this exact question, I mean, we we obviously have children, Andrew, so we spend a not insignificant amount of time thinking about the future. Although it's certainly a, a much nearer term than five hundred million years, I'm not thinking about the quadrillions. I'm thinking about you know my my children's adulthoods and their children's and you know perhaps their children's children. But that's kind of as far as my personal horizon normally extends. Um, but but you know what's what's a good starting point for you for this answer of what we owe the future?
1: I think this kind of hypothetical type of utilitarianism um, you know, it's not, it's not really my cup of tea, but one thing that it can do for me is, um, make me, um, uh, yeah, make, make me really think seriously about my commitments to, to those who will come after. Um, I mean, utilitarians are kind of like ostensibly unselfish, right. Um, now, right. whether they are or not, you know, sometimes I get a little yeah. cynical about it because it's like, well, are you, or is this just about, you know, your theory or whatever, right? Um, but I mean, you know, for those of us who are, who are Christians, right? I mean, I think, about, uh, I think about Chesterton all the time. I think about like, it's not only the democracy of the dead, but the democracy of the unborn, right? I mean, like, we, like every decision that we make today, we're doing so in light of what has come before. So we have a kind of conserving, preserving role, but then we also have the role of like a steward uh, preparing for, you know, for what will come next. And that's just good sound living. That's just good, you know, basic morality, which is usually the way that I would rather think of these questions rather than kind of the discipline of ethics. So I was grateful. I was grateful for this review and I too would like to pick this book up and just sort of see, you know, what, what McCaskill is kind of uh, provoking me to think more deeply about.
0: Yeah. I think uh, the only thing I would add to your comments there are, I think we can it, it is hard to deal with these situational ethics questions and have them sort of inform um, inform our practical lives uh, rather than sort of our our abstract theories. But I think, from my vantage point, we can and should apply some general principles to this question of what we owe the future that inform exactly how we act now. And your point about stewards is a good one. This has been the the perennial a perennial theme in Catholic social teaching for hundreds of years. We are stewards of what we're be, what we've been given, and if you think of a steward as you know someone uh, in charge of a bank account, uh, if that bank account reaches zero, the steward has failed his or her job, right? And so, in the same way, depletion is not a good thing, and we should never deplete anything. If we've depleted a natural resource, we have not done our jobs as stewards. I think that's principle number one. And so, to, to even this point about you know preserving some of the the uh, the, the the near surface coal deposits, right? I think to use up all the coal deposits in the world is not a good example of stewardship. And we should not do that, uh, it, it, you know, for, for reasons beyond simply what we owe the future, it could even be what we owe the now because some some economies in the world are not prepared to move beyond coal right now. I mean, uh, Alexander even mentions uh, an entire industry in Brazil that runs on charcoal. So um, that is one one principle, I think, depletion is bad. The other more enduring, more applicable principle is simply that we should be governed by charity, and of course, situational ethics doesn't take into account charity and how that informs our lives. But the uh, the reason that you should donate to a uh, to a you know I don't know children's wellness organization is not because you would also jump in a river to save a child even though you were in expensive suit, but it should be because you you love the people around you and you want to make their lives better in a concrete sense, and so everything we do should be oriented towards towards charity in that sense as well. Now that might not be concrete enough for people to um, be satisfied with, but I think that's a good starting principle to inform our concrete behaviors uh, from a standpoint that is, that is very different from utilitarianism who are, you know, it's, it's not, it's not based on love. It's based on happiness and love is not happiness. Those are two very different things. Um, so that would be my, my just brief adds to what, what you described as well.
1: Yeah. And just one last note. I mean, it's also utilitarianism is also about the avoidance of suffering and, You know, on some level, Christians have to say, well, yeah, we want to diminish suffering, but we also believe that there is a, you know, by God's grace and providence, there is a, like a, uh, there is a good that can come from suffering. I mean, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we are, um, we can grow because of it. So anyways, it's a different worldview, the utilitarian versus kind of the the charitable Christian view.
0: Highly different, but I think it's important to have these discussions, especially because it is a very different worldview and that's really why it's important, right? Uh, and it's a very prevalent worldview because without without the same meta, without sharing our metaphysical priors, Andrew, as in you and I, without sharing our priors, um, utilitarianism is the second most prevalent worldview. Actually, it's probably the most prevalent because ours is not the most prevalent worldview, right? But uh, without our metaphysical convictions, uh, you end up in a spot like utilitarianism, and if it's not exactly utilitarianism, it's a lot like it. I think, um, unless it's nihilism, which is a just. Its own, its own problem. But this utilitarianism is, I think, the sort of governing philosophy um, that is dominant almost everywhere today. And so we need to be really equipped to just understand it and then push back against it because it fails in many more respects than it succeeds. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is all for uh, that section. I think we've got to wrap up there just for the sake of time, but let's move on to our recommendations. So what do you have for uh, us today, Andrew.
1: All right. Well, I mentioned earlier uh, Elon Musk's tweets about Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. I have attempted to watch the first episode of Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, and I really couldn't take it. I was just bored out of my mind. Um, so I have turned to uh, resources that I trust to to kind of fill me in on some things that happened in in the episodes and to kind of get a take on what's going on in the series and, and where it's going. Um, a channel on YouTube that I like to watch is called Nerd Roddick. Um and it's hosted by this guy named Gary Beekler, who used to own a comic book shop in San Francisco. He moved to Texas during the during the pandemic. He's got some really provocative takes on a lot of stuff in popular culture. He's like a huge uh, comic book guy, kind of superhero guy, sci-fi guy, all that kind of stuff. But he has been very critical of most of the newer stuff that's been coming down the the pike as far as Marvel, sci fi, stuff like that. And he has got a great video from September 4th on the first two episodes of Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. It's called The Rings of Power is Abysmal Amazon's Billion Dollar Disaster. And uh, I've sent you the link to uh, share that in the show notes. I recommend Gary's channel. It's not for everybody, it's a little rough around the edges sometimes. I don't agree with all of his takes, but on the whole, I'm grateful that he's doing what he does.
0: Yeah, that is helpful. I have to say, Andrew, I just experienced Schadenfreude when I see a giant company like Amazon with all the money in the world. On the surface, everything it takes to make a blockbuster success and to make it really well, fail so spectacularly in the task. Now, I haven't seen the the series at all. I haven't seen a single second. I think I saw about 30 seconds of the trailer and thought it looked terrible. But uh, I love that they are failing spectacularly because we need to see more tech companies fail because tech companies act like they are advancing human flourishing, yeah, and they're simply not. They're yeah. simply not. So watching them fail in such a, a, a brazenly public and visible way is to me very
1: encouraging. Can I just share really, really quick the the, yeah. the reason the reason Gary points out and my own experience watching a bit of the first episode, the reason why the show fails is not just because the tech industry wants to like shoehorn in all this wokism and like the message and like it's just getting kind of lost in all of that kind of thing it is just yeah. flat out bad acting bad writing bad directing bad cgi it is just a bad show and that's the tragedy of it is like these companies have more money than they know what to do with and they're just not doing anything with it it's just bad yeah. art
0: yeah Yeah, it is bad art, and uh, it it takes more than money to make art, which is another very good lesson from these types of fails. Um, Okay, my recommendation, I have not read the the latest installment in what I'm about to recommend, but uh, you may be aware of this, Andrew, that J.K. Rowling has a pen name. She goes by Robert Galbraith. Yes, my
1: mother-in-law is a big fan of of these books. Yeah.
0: They are fantastic. So, highly recommend the Cormorant Strike series. I've read all of them so far. I'm on the library wait list with my wife for the newest one, which is called the Ink Black Heart. Very, and not fantasy at all. It's it's just crime fiction, a very different genre, obviously from Harry Potter and her previous work. But man, J.K. Rowling is a talented, talented writer. And these these stories definitely not for kids. They get they get pretty dark and rough around the edges as well. But she can really tell a good yarn and I, th- I find them just to be great pieces of fiction to lose yourself in. So if you, if you haven't read any of those yet, it t- now's a great time to read the first one and then go on through because the latest one was just out. She's releasing, I think once every two years for the series. And I, th- I heard she's going to do nine books in total. I think the sixth one just came out. Um, but yeah, highly recommend the Robert Galbraith series by JK Rowling.
1: Great. I'm I'm going to pick those up. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you should for sure. Maybe uh, grab one for your uh, long plane trip. I think that's the
1: perfect solution. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It'll get you ready for for England because it means so much of it. takes The whole thing takes place in England and much of it in London. Mm So, Um, Speaking of which, we will not be around next week. Andrew will still be in England. So we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, I think we're going to have a special guest on that episode as well. So stay tuned for that. But uh, yeah, we will not be on next week. I'll release something else on this feed instead. Andrew, have a great trip across the pond and looking looking forward to uh, joining you again for these in two weeks. Thanks, Zach. See you soon. All right. To our listeners, thanks so much for watching, listening. However, you're uh you're getting this. Send us a note, Zach at Credopodcast.com with any questions, comments, concerns, complaints. We love hearing from listeners. We like to do listener feedback at the very beginning of the show. So we will read your your comment if you write to us uh, and and give us some sort of comment, critique, as long as it's appropriate for area, we'll, we'll read it and engage with it. So please do that. Zach, Z-A-C at credopodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to us for another week. And until next time, God bless you.